Well, good morning, church. The 930 service was happier to see me, i got to be honest. <laughs> um, as Paul said, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. And, and just let me uh, tell you and explain, you know, as one of your elders and pastors, I am so excited about our Church Defined series uh, and what that means for our church. And uh, I know for many of you, this is the first time you've heard me preach a sermon. Um, so let me go ahead and just put some stuff out there that you may need to know. Number one, I do not have the power whisper of Michael Lauren. I don't have it in me. I just don't. Um, I also, obviously, if it's not as sharp looking as a Daniel or a Paul, I get that. But what I do make up for it is with a shiny bald head. Now, during this service, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. There's a good chance there's going to be a glare off my bald head that's going to hit you. So if you need to wear your sunglasses throughout the service, I'm not offended. You do what you got to do. It is totally okay. Uh, with all that in mind, seriously, I am very, very excited uh, to bring God's word to our church family this morning. So if you'll join me in prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for how you love us. Lord, thank you for Jesus, dear Lord, dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit you've given all of us in Christ. Lord, to grow us and transform us to be more like Jesus, dear Lord. May we not hear from a man this morning, dear Lord, but may, may we hear from you, dear Lord. That you will grow us in your word, dear Lord, and you will be glorified uh, this morning. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So the big truth that we have been wrestling with and we will continue to wrestle with um, in this Church Defined series is that we as a church are defined by the foundational principles that ground us as a church, the core practices that guide us as a church, as well as the membership promises that we make to one another as a church family. So what do we mean by uh, foundational principles? If you've been here the past couple weeks, uh, you've heard Mike explain this, and I think Paul hit on this in the opening, uh, but I do think it's worth our time to kind of just go over those real quick. So as foundational principles as a church, we believe that the church, the body of Christ, we exist for the glory of God. We don't exist for ourselves as an entity. We exist to glorify God. We also believe in biblical authority. So what does that mean? Well, that means that we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. It's the very word of God and has all authority over every area of our life. We believe in that. We also believe in gospel sufficiency, which means we believe and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It means that we rest in our position of who we are in Jesus Christ, being made right with the Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ alone. It's not something that we do. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's the finished work of Christ alone. We believe in the gospel sufficiency. We also believe that Scripture says what the church ought to be like and how the church is made up by leaders of pastors and elders, and we believe in uh, things like the Lord's Supper and um, baptism. And we as a church, those are our core principles that we are grounded in as a church. And out of our core principle, uh, out of our foundational principles flow our core practices as a church. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the, the first core uh, practice of the church, which is abide. Um, and, uh, and what I mean by that is, when we, when we say we abide in Christ, what we mean is, is that we believe Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. So before Jesus calls you to anything else, he is first calling you to a dynamic love relationship with himself. 
in which we rest in Jesus Christ as our, as our Savior. We also pursue him daily through the spending of regular time with him. So this morning, we're going to be spending most of our time in John 15. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to John 15. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please, you can uh, get one off the seat back in front of you. Take it home with you. It's yours. It's a free gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So before we get to John 15, I just want to spend just a little bit of time just kind of setting the scene, the context of where we're at in John 15. Okay, so John 15, this is in the middle of Jesus. He's spending his last night with the disciples before he is ultimately going to be arrested and crucified. Okay, so he's spending the last night with his disciples. And what he's doing is he's talking to them. He's explaining to them what it looks like, what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus when he's not actually going to be in your physical presence. You see, the disciples have had the past three and a half years or so with Jesus, walking with Jesus, doing ministry beside of Jesus, hearing the commands of Jesus, hearing Jesus unpack scripture, all of the scripture that occurred before his time on earth, right? So he spent all his time. So now he's like, listen, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried and be resurrected in three days. And after a short period of time, I want to go to heaven with my father. And the disciples didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand it. So Jesus is explaining to them what that's going to be like for them and what it's going to be like to be a disciple of his during that time. And it's during this time, if, you've, if you know any of the history of the Gospels and the outline of Jesus' life on earth, it's during this time that they're in the upper room, right? So they're in the upper room. This is where they're um, partaking in the Passover meal, right? They're also, uh, Jesus had just washed the, the feet of the disciples, Right? And then one of the disciples, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, proves to be an unbeliever. He's not a true believer. And he proves that by going off and, and betraying Jesus that will ultimately lead to the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Okay, so when we get to John 15, what happens is they've already left the upper room. Okay, so they left the upper room, and now they're making their way. Jesus and the 11 true disciples are making their way to the garden the very location where Jesus will be arrested, leading to his crucifixion. So we pick up in John 15 and verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruits. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus is making a revolutionary statement right here to the disciples. And what makes it so revolutionary is up until this point in the Old Testament and in Jewish culture, the nation of Israel was supposed to be the vine that God planted himself for his glory, that would display his glory to the nations, that he would build a people from. Okay, And the only way you could be made right with God, be connected with God the Father, is if you were either a Jew or you conformed to the Jewish religion. Okay, And the fact is, throughout the Old Testament, and even in the time that Jesus walked on this earth, the nation of Israel was failing miserably. Okay, Outwardly, they may have appeared to be following God, but it was just outward. It was, there was no real depth in it. There was no real fruit. There was no real love for God. They would do all these outward appearances and make a big show of their rituals while they also pursued other religions, other gods, and their own kingdoms. So Jesus is saying that he is the true vine, that he 
is the true vine that the nation of Israel could never truly be. And then be made right with God, it was only possible if you had a connection with Jesus, a true connection with Jesus in which he was your Lord and your Savior. So true disciples of Jesus, because of this, when he gives this illustration of the vine, true disciples of Jesus have a permanent, life-giving, fruit-producing union with Jesus. That's what he says here in the beginning of John 15. So what does he mean by fruit? What does that, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Does that mean that you're going to grow like apples out of your fingers? No. No, my daughter just laughed. Doesn't mean that. Um, He's saying that true believers, their life will be transformed because the the very spirit of Jesus will be residing in them. And that God's spirit will transform true believers to be more like Jesus. Their thoughts, their desires, and their actions will progressively become more like Jesus. And this happens through the process of sanctification. And what sanctification is, is when God takes anything that doesn't look like Jesus in your life and he cuts it away. Okay, so scripture refers to it as pruning. And and he gives this illustration, Jesus does in in verse 15, he gives this illustration of a vine, right? And And he talks about pruning the vine and he talks about how it will produce fruit, right? And it's kind of like this. Recently, I decided that I wanted to have a garden. And I started by trying to build what I thought would be the area of a garden. And my wife's like, that ain't happening, man. And I'm like, but I want to have a garden because her grandparents had a garden. And Mama Phillips would go out there and she would can all these green beans and stuff. Like, literally, you go to Mama Phillips' house right now, you get you a can of green beans from, like, 2015. I'm just telling you. Okay? And then she had an apple tree, right? out there and she would take apples and she would freeze them and then like if you want Mama Phillips to make a fried apple pie at 11 o'clock at night Mama Phillips be making you an apple pie at 11 o'clock at night it was awesome these are the goals I have for my life right so I told my wife I wanted an apple tree and she's like listen you understand you buy an apple tree that doesn't mean you get apples today that's not what that means so the apple tree you know it grows and then it starts to get these little branches and then apples grow but it's not the kind of apples apples you're going to put in that frozen apple pie it's not that you got to prune the branches and they start to produce more apples and those are the apples you want problem is this takes eight years and a lot of work and which i said no thank you that's what jesus is saying here about the vine and those who are truly connected in him he says those who aren't true believers and you got to think the disciples are thinking of judas at this point somebody who was at connected to Jesus, attached to Jesus, but not a true believer. He was still dead inside that the Father will remove the dead branches. They have no relationship with the vine. And that he will prune true believers, branches that produce fruit. Those who are true disciples, those whose lives are becoming more and more like Jesus. And he'll prune them and they'll produce more fruit. And then he'll continue to prune them and he'll, they'll produce much fruit. Okay, and often pruning doesn't feel good. Often there's affliction in that and there's some pain in that. But we can ultimately trust our Heavenly Father who gave us His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins, that if He did that and He did not withhold His Son, that He has our best interest in mind. And as He prunes us, He's causing us to become more like Jesus Christ. We should welcome that. So are you saying that Someone's saved by the, by the fruit that they produce? Like, they got to produce fruit to be a Christian? No, absolutely not. The, the fruit 
that, is, um, that a believer bears is a result of Jesus living in them. It doesn't earn their salvation. An outward fruit of a believer, of an unbeliever, is a self-righteous attempt to earn a good standing with God. It'll prove to be that. I mean, look at Judas. Judas hung out with the disciples, right? Jesus hung out with Jesus. Uh, Judas hung out with Jesus. They were together, but in the end, it was just an outward appearance. He was never a true believer because Jesus was not the Lord and Savior of his life. So we move to verse 4 in which Jesus is now talking to the 11 true disciples in which he says, abide in me. This is where we get the core practice of abide. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So this is where we come to our core practice of abide, which means we're to rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And we pursue him daily through spending regular time with him and all of our other core practices as a church is are defined through this practice of abide they all flow through this practice of abide so how we live as a community of believers how we disciple our families how we go share the good news of the gospel to the people across the street and the people across the ocean all flows out of this core practice of abide within the definition of abide there's both a resting in our position of who we are in jesus christ and there's a pursuit to become more like Jesus. So this is where we, we have our big idea number one for this morning. We rest in the fact that we are in Christ. We rest in our position in Christ. And in Christ, because of his grace, we are accepted, we are loved and declared righteous before the Father as Jesus is himself. Therefore, we live from a place of resting of who we are in Christ. What is completely and forever true because of the unchanging person and finished work of Christ. We believe in the sufficiency of the gospel as a church. Ephesians 1.4 says this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. This is God the Father. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of the glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved Jesus. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Christ, we are adopted brothers or adopted sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Now, today's Father's Day, and for some of us, we celebrate that. We celebrate that because we've had a dad who's invested in our lives. Or we celebrate that because we have children you know, and, and we're dads ourselves. It's like, man, you know, I'm just I'm so thankful to be a dad. But there's a lot of people in this room this morning, Father's Day's painful. It's painful. 
It's either painful because you have uh, members of your father that just aren't so good. Or maybe you're a father yourself and you've just failed um, in some areas and you just feel bad for that. You're just guilt and shame for that. But I'm here to tell you this morning, and more importantly, Scripture's here to tell you this morning, that if you are in Jesus Christ, you have a heavenly Father that loves you with a perfect love that you can't even imagine. And the good news is he loves you with that perfect love, but also that love can never be taken away from you. It can never be taken away from you. You can never be separated from the love of your heavenly Father, right? And you didn't do anything to earn that love. And guess what? You can't do anything to lose that love. Rest in that this morning. Rest in that. Our position in Christ is not based on anything we've done or anything we'll ever do, but what Christ has already done for us. Ephesians 2, 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace. We haven't done anything to earn it. Our position in Christ has nothing to do with how many Sunday mornings we come here to worship. It has nothing to do with you serving on a ministry team. Those are outward expressions. Your position in Christ has nothing to do with you being in three study groups. None of those things matter. Those things earn you salvation about as much as wearing a t-shirt that says, I heart Jesus. It would be ridiculous to think that that's how we are in Christ. No, we're in Christ because of the grace he's given us. Grace alone, faith alone. We don't trust in Jesus plus anything else. We trust and rest in Christ and Christ alone. We rest in the sufficiency of the gospel. And we never move past that as a church. So I've got to ask you this morning, are you resting in Jesus Christ? In the position of who he has declared you to be in Christ as an adopted son and daughter. Are you resting in that this morning? We rest in the fact that we are in Christ we also, part of abide is there's the pursuit. We are set apart to be like Christ. We're set apart to be transformed practically to the very likeness of Jesus Christ. When God's spirit resides in you, in the life of a true believer, he is transforming you into the very image of Christ. He awakens us with a desire to know and become more like Jesus and our lives are characterized by a daily, daily pursuit of Jesus while his spirit is in us continually conforming us to the image of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we're being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Matt Carter, a pastor in Texas, says it this way. When people trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, the life of Jesus begins to flow through them like the nutrients through the branch. We just heard about that in John 15, right? Jesus has made them alive. His spirit now dwells in them, and he gives them power to serve him and trust him and tell of him and live for him. He promises never to leave them and to sustain them from all for all times. Another author says it this way, if Jesus has taken up residence inside of you, you will be different. You will act differently. You will love differently. You will live differently. The difference is not due to the strength, your effort, or your zeal. The difference is due to the persistent work of Jesus in you. Jesus is alive, powerful, and actively at work in his disciples. He didn't just save us. He's also making us more like him. Some of you may be saying, you know what? You know, I 
I've repented. I believe, I do believe Jesus is my Lord, my Savior. I'm trying to follow him. But I just still struggle with some sin in my life. There's just some sin I can't shake. Well, the reality is this side of eternity, there's still going to be sin we struggle with. We'll ultimately be perfected in the perfect image of Christ one day. But on this side of eternity, we're still, there's still going to be a struggle. There's still that process of sanctification where the, where the Heavenly Father is chipping things away in our life that doesn't look like Jesus. But that needs, with your relationship with sin, needs to be a struggle against it, not a pursuit towards it. Not a pursuit towards it. Scripture is clear that Jesus will not give up on you. And he will not fail to transform your life to look more like Jesus Christ. He cares more about your relationship with him and who you are um, becoming than you do. He does. He does. So we rest in the fact that we are in Jesus Christ. We also pursue becoming more like Jesus. God's word instructs us that when we abide, when we rest in this position, when we pursue to become more like Jesus, that we are to abide both personally and corporately as a church body. So big idea number three, we abide personally. We often see uh, in Scripture that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, even went off to himself, went off by himself, and spent time with the Heavenly Father. This should be an example to us for us to understand that we desperately need to have communion with the Father. Psalm 119.9, the psalmist says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we need to be in our Bible, reading our Bible and journaling every morning at 6 a.m.? Well, that's not saying that. But it would be wise to be in God's word daily, Right? It would be wise to do an in-depth study of God's word as opposed to just glossing over a few chapters a day. It would be unwise for us to spend more time reading books from Lifeway about Christianity than actually reading the actual Bible. And I got to say this, I say this humbly, and I say this out of love. But if you've been a Christian for at least five years and you haven't read through the entire Bible... You're probably unhealthy. And if I'm going to be truly honest, there's a good chance that you have an issue with biblical authority. I say that out of love. You know, some of y'all may think that I'm sounding a little harsh on this, but you know, John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How can you be sanctified by God's word if you're not in God's word? That would be like me expecting my marriage to thrive with my wife, but me not spend any time with my wife. Most of you all would think that it was unwise of me to maybe only hang out for breakfast with my wife on Sundays, then meet her up for dinner on Wednesday nights, and there'd be no in-between time. There'd be no time that we're actually spending with each other throughout the week. Most of you all would think that that's probably unwise of me if I want my marriage to grow and to thrive. Y'all would say, man, you've got to, have, you, you've got to adopt a, a sincere attitude. Well, let me ask you this. Why would we think that we can take that same apathetic approach to our relationship with Jesus and it would grow? It's nonsense. We abide personally by spending time with the Lord daily through study and meditation of God's word. 
We also abide personally by our obedience to God's word. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my, command, my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Matt Carter says this, Jesus isn't saying if you want me to love you, you have to obey. He's saying if you love me, you demonstrate it through obedience. Obedience doesn't earn love. Obedience is the evidence of love. Okay, what we have to also understand is love is not a feeling. It's a verb. It's a verb. Okay, recently, you know, we went to Disney. My daughter is in, into, like, Disney princesses. She's six, right? So we went to Disney. It was fun. Like, seriously, Disney was, was crazy cool. It's the first time I'd ever been to Disney. I lost about 10 pounds in sweat because it was hot and we did a lot of walking. But, man, it was awesome. But, you know, so because she likes Disney, we watch Disney princess stuff. Uh, and, and that's good, right? Um, I'm all for Anna, not so much Elsa. I think Anna's kind of in the shadows. She needs a little light. Um, but in any event, um, Disney has sold us this illusion that love is just a strong feeling. Now, granted, there are aspects of love when we have a strong feeling towards someone. I, I love my wife and kids that way. But there's also the verb component and how we demonstrate our love and how we act. When we abide in God's love and his, and his word, we begin to see that he has loved us in his pursuit of us. There's a verb there. He created us. He redeemed us. He's transforming us to become more like the image, the perfect image of Jesus Christ. And when we abide in his love, we also welcome his pursuit to transform us to become more like Jesus. We abide in the work that he is doing in us. Let me be honest with you. Scripture does not know of a true believer who does not abide in God's love. Scripture does not know of a true believer who's not called Jesus both Lord and Savior. And if I'm going to be completely transparent with you this morning, it scares me and breaks my heart when I look in Scripture and I see stories of disciples who fell away from Jesus. Jesus started to say some tough things. They fell away. When you see Judas who left and betrayed Jesus wasn't a true disciple. They may have wanted a Savior, but they didn't want a Lord. And when I see those people in Scripture, and then I look around at the people that I grew up with in the Bible Belt, even here in East Tennessee, now that we're here, and I see them and I compare and I see the similarities. People who, because they grew up in church, and that's just the kind of thing they've done, and they come on Sundays, they come on Wednesdays, they've done all these things. They've done these things, but they've never, never considered Jesus to be the Lord of their life. It scares me. Being a genuine believer is more than just knowing facts about Jesus. Scripture tells us that the demons know who Jesus is. They know facts about Jesus. You're not going to see a demon in heaven. Knowing facts about the NFL and hanging around the Tennessee Titans stadium does not make me a professional football player for the Tennessee Titans. It doesn't. It means that I'm just a knowledgeable fan of the game. People who know facts about Jesus, facts about Christianity, but they're not really placing saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're just a knowledgeable fan of Christianity. They're not true believers. They're not true followers. It scares me to think that cultural Christianity, nominal Christianity, that that illusion has been sold and bought by so many people. 
A genuine follower of Jesus Christ is someone that has repented of their sins. They've asked for forgiveness and turned from their sins. They place saving faith in Jesus Christ. John 15 tells us that the proof that someone is a true believer is the fruit that they bear. And we see this fruit in someone who's actively living out their life in repentance because of the work God is doing in their lives according to his word. John 15, 10 says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Listen, church, our joy and obedience to his word are not mutually exclusive. A genuine believer will find their joy in the obedience of God's word when they see God's commands as another expression of his love for us as he transforms us into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. And when we find our joy and obedience to Jesus, his desires become our desires. And when his desires become our desires, we also pray according to his word. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. When we pray according to God's will and the very nature of Jesus, he answers our prayers. He answers our prayers. So as Tri-Cities, you know, we have our foundational principles, our core practices. We also have promises to one another as a church body, promises we've made to one another. And the promises that flow out of abiding personally is this. We promise to abide in Jesus Christ as our Savior, resting in his saving and sanctifying work through faith and pursuing him through the regular Bible study, prayer, and consistent practice of spiritual disciplines. We also promise to pursue holiness by the grace of God, living a life of obedience to Scripture as an ambassador of Christ and representative of his church. So we abide personally, but we also abide together as a church. Although following Jesus is very personal, it was never meant to be private. Never meant to be private. Many of the dimensions of our abiding relationship in Jesus Christ are designed for us to do it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we gather for worship together, we serve together, we're in community with one another, we care for one another, we encourage one another, we admonish one another. And as we do these things, we abide in the love of Christ together as a church by loving each other as Jesus also has loved us. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, but someone laid down his life for his friends. The love believers have for one another should be marked by selfless devotion to one another and not just a superficial love. Remember, love is a verb. It's not just a mere saying, I love you to someone. It's how you care for them and point them to Jesus. 1 John three seventeen says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You cannot say you love Jesus if you don't love his people. If you do not love his people, the love of God is not in you. God's designed his church. He's designed it, adopted sons and daughters to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's gifted us in different ways so we can come together, love each other well, encourage one another, and build each other up into the perfect image of Christ. He uses his people to do that with each other, not in isolation. Not in isolation. 
Ephesians 4.15 says this, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This means that we don't just settle for some sort of superficial love, but it's, there's an action in that. As a church, we spend time pointing each other to Jesus, even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. It means that you encourage someone when they need it, but it also means you admonish somebody when they need it. It also means that you love someone enough to point out unwise choices they're making in their life. And when you love the church like Jesus has loved the disciples, you live sacrificially, you love sacrificially with a commitment to the body. This means you choose unity over division. You choose unity over division. We may not always agree on everything together, but we choose unity. We choose to come alongside of each other in love, even when it's not easy to do so. And it means we also point out biblical truth, even if it's going to be offensive to the tribe that we belong to. And that's difficult. That is difficult. But we abide in the love of Christ together as a church by loving each other as Jesus loved the disciples. You didn't see Jesus shine away from telling his disciples about biblical truth. He loved them enough to tell them. We also abide together uh, as a church through the teaching, learning, and talking about Scripture. In Deuteronomy, the Lord instructs his people to have his word on their mind continuously. Not just on their mind, but on their hearts and on their mouths, and they're talking about it from the time they get up to the time they go to bed. They allow the word to just rest in their mind, and they meditate on the word as they go about their day. Their worldview of how they see everything else is shaped by the very word of God. And they do this together in community. That's why we have a Sunday morning worship. That's the reason we put so much emphasis on that. That's why we put emphasis on life groups and study groups. That's why we place an emphasis on the family discipleship plan, about discipling your children to know and love Jesus. Does that mean that we need to have perfect attendance to all of these things, to the Sunday morning worship gathering, to all your weekly group meetings? Does that mean I've got to have perfect attendance to be doing that? Wisdom would say that rather asking if you need to have perfect attendance, just make it a priority in your life. Make loving and growing in community as the church a priority in your life. That's why we have the membership promise as in regards to abiding together. We promise as a church to make much of Jesus, keeping him the head of our church and calling people to abide in him. This time I'm going to ask the worship team to come down. As we close, what we have to understand is our commitment to the core practice of abide is connected to our biblical principle that we exist for God's glory. John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Church, we exist for the glory of God. And we glorify God by how we live out the gospel in our lives. That's spiritual fruit. That's evidence that he's doing work in us. 
Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see the good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we become more like Jesus and we live out the gospel in our daily lives, we're going to look different than the rest of the world. You're going to look different than your coworkers. You're going to look different than your neighbors. You're going to look different than your friends. And to be honest with you, you're going to look different than a lot of people in your own family. And that's okay because it glorifies God. And they see God residing in you and through you. So we glorify God by how we live out the gospel in our lives, but we also glorify God by our bold proclamation of the gospel. The Great Commission, last commandment Jesus gave to his disciples He says, all authority has been given to me under heaven. All authority. Now go make disciples of all people, of all nations. We have a message to proclaim. And it's a message of salvation for a lost world. But listen, it's not about just salvation for a lost world. It's also to say, listen, there is a holy creator. There is a holy redeemer. And he deserves your glory. He deserves to receive glory from you. He deserves glory from the people across the street who don't know him. He also deserves glory from people in Yemen who've never heard of him. He deserves to receive their glory. And we have the message of salvation. We've been given it. He's given it to us as the church to go proclaim for his glory and the joy of others. We exist to glorify God. Now I'm going to enter into a time we call a response time. This band is playing over us. I'd ask that everybody bow their head and spend some time in prayer to the Lord. During this time, I'd ask, you ask the Lord to search your heart, whether you are abiding in a relationship with Jesus or not, have him search your heart, ask him to, and ask yourself, am I abiding in Christ? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Is your life increasingly looking more like Jesus than when you first came to know him? Are you finding your ultimate joy in being obedient to the Father and his word? Is your prayer shaped by the word of God? Ask the Lord to search your heart in this time. During this time, we have a prayer room. When you walk out these doors to the right, there's a prayer room. There's people in there right now that would love to pray with you. This altar is also always open. If you want to come pray, someone will will join you and pray with you. Maybe this morning you've realized that you've never had a true abiding relationship in Jesus Christ. You're not resting in him. Maybe you're a believer, but you are just struggling with some sin right now and you just need to repent and you need to pray. You need someone to talk to, to pray over you. Maybe you just realize, hey, I just want my life to look more like Jesus. This time is for you. As the band continues to play, I want to pray over us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good, good Father. Lord, you have not withheld any perfect gift from us. You've given us everything in Jesus. Lord, you've given us your word, the very word that you have breathed out. You've given it to us so we may know you and grow in our relationship with you. So, Lord, may we be a church that rests in gospel sufficiency. 
and the finished work of Jesus Christ, Lord. May we be a church that is pursuing to become more like Jesus, Lord. I ask you with open hands and an open heart and fear and trembling, but prune us. Take away anything in our life, dear Lord, that doesn't look like you. Dear Lord, please do this all for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask these things.